now it's, um, it's going to be really great to have our three lovely speakers. So we've got about 10 or 12 minutes for questions. I've got a question over here. Uh, it's Tim. Tim, hello. Thanks a lot for those three fantastic and stimulating presentations again. My questions, I guess, specifically to Darren, but um, I'd be very interested in also, I think, particularly Elsie's responses to it. Um, I think you highlight a lot of the, the dangers of, of algorithms as currently constructed, but I guess putting the, putting the discussion of, of power and of hegemony that we had from both Amanda and Elsie on top of that, I wonder how much of that is algorithms as currently constructed through current power and hegemony. There was a, fa a fascinating piece of research that was recently promoted by the, by the World Economic Forum as saying uh, algorithms are all about collecting power and building and growing. What the WF, WEF didn't say is that the same study also showed that you can design algorithms for cooperation which work just as well and possibly better. Um, so I wonder if you, if you, Darren, could reflect a little bit on whether you think we can actually design algorithms to work positively for the commons, and Elsie and Amanda, if you have thoughts on, on how technology interacts with, with your questions of power and hegemony as well. Thank you. That, that's a really good question. I think, of course, we can use algorithms to support the commons. I mean, you know, if you look at it this way, um, so much of the the kind of the, pro the problematic around how we deal with the, the present economy's, you know, negative externalities. So, for one thing, we could start developing platforms which look at the, the true cost of the consumption of various goods and services in the economy, and you know, um, tell us how our you know decisions that people are making as consumers is impacting various labour markets, various supply chains. Um, and, and so on, and look, in, look into the practices of corporations that we're buying from and so on. Um, so there's every opportunity to use those same technologies um, for, for good and for cooperation and for mutuality and for solidarity. And there's, um, you know, from the, just from the data example around various movements around data sovereignty, trying to address just that, uh, I think the biggest challenge is... Um, and we were talking about this over lunch, like, you know, how do you get off things like Facebook, which um, is just such a, a kind of um, awful platform, but we're so kind of embedded in it in terms of so many of the groups that we, that we run and maintain and the way we facilitate um, organising and mobilisation and, and knowledge sharing and so on, but we're all there. So how do we switch over to platforms like Diaspora or Mastodon or all these things which no one's probably ever heard of, and then get enough of us over there to make it actually a valuable platform that we can use. So I think that's the biggest challenge with software eating the world, as Mark Andreessen said, that those network effects are now entering into every sphere of life, and so we need to figure out how to overcome that. Platform cooperatives are trying to do that by bringing democratic ownership and control to the platforms. The Beehive, Bendigo example, Stocksy in Canada, Economics, Fairmondo, there's now hundreds of them around the world using those same technologies but for, you know, the common good. Amanda and Elsie, did you have any responses? Um, just to say definitely that, you know, all knowledge um, is power and, and collecting it can be used to our benefit and I think Cathy O'Neill's Weapons of Math 
destruction, part of what stimulated her was the sense of, you know, data being collected about school outcomes and, you know, and, and different areas and what was, you know, happening to children in certain areas and comparing them. But it got used negatively against teachers and their contracts. So collecting the data was really good, but then it's how we use it. Um, it's not my area of expertise, but, I mean, I guess I have questions about having worked a lot overseas, um, places like Fiji, the Philippines. I remember 10 years ago when everyone said the internet was going to revolutionise and democratise the access to information for everybody. And yet, in some ways, these tools, and especially with the algorithms, are actually categorising and creating more barriers between people because it's actually filtering what information you've got access to. And it's been astounding coming back to work in Australia in rural areas, assuming that people know what we know in the city or they're in the same... Um, same networks and have access to the same information. So this whole, like, people have completely different understanding of the facts and alternative facts and stuff like that. But how do we get past that? It almost what makes sense, the intersection between groups of people and that dialogue that is very deliberate and going out to people. How do we do that? I think those skills need to be built again. Um, if they were there in the first place, I'm not really sure. But it, it's much harder to bridge some of those gaps and it's only going to get harder. I think. So we need to look out for that. I don't have a technological answer for it. I'm Thank you, Neil. I'm terribly sorry, ladies. I'm a big, ugly white guy. <laughs> but I am actually working we very hard. <laughs> I'm actually working very hard with Sisters of Mercy and Faith Ecology Network, bridging between science and faith and eco-spirituality. And so I loved both the conversations, especially yours, Amanda, but also Elsie's. One of the questions I asked my faith sisters recently was, and I'm not a man of faith, but I'm working with them, how do we go in and demonstrate comprehensive compassion to the men in coal mining communities? Not just in just transition in terms of technology. What does comprehensive compassion look like when we actually open and hold that space, listen deeply, help them change the values and recognise that despite the messages they're being given? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really important stuff you're talking about. How do we create those dialogues and how can you help me to help you to create that dialogue, because that's the role I'm trying to play as a big, ugly, white guy as a Trojan horse, helping them to say and speak truth to power in ways that they might not be able to, trapped inside the systems. And in the same way those people are trapped inside the systems looking for transformative change. So how can I work with you to help you do what we know needs to be done? Yep. So first thing is I only go where I'm invited, number one rule. If you go in, like, if you, if you want to set up that kind of dialogue, there has to be an opening for you to go into. So I'm only talking to people who are slightly open in the first place. I guess um, when they talked about this morning, I can't remember who it was, they talked about addiction and the um, listening and asking questions. I actually used to work with injecting drug users and developing health promotion materials around safe injecting. That was, like, 17 years ago. I suddenly went... Actually, that's what I do. I took health promotion. <laughs> it's like you meet people at the stage of change that they're at and you ask them what they're concerned about. And I am genuinely curious about people. I'm, I, a lot of people see me as an activist. I, I cannot be motivated by anger. Like, it drains the energy out of me. What fuels me is genuinely I am curious about people and understanding where they're coming from. You can't fake that, but it actually works. Um, and the other thing is, what I've, and the last thing is, I've been really surprised at going in. I don't hide where my values are. I mean, people pick up on that anyway. They know who I am. Um, but I've been really surprised at how desperate people are to actually talk if you're genuinely there to listen and you, you ask the, the, the questions and you want to know about where they're coming from. The number of coal miners and um, wives of coal miners, generally our wives, 
um, who are saying, we, don't, we actually don't want these jobs for our kids. We want jobs for our kids. We don't care what happens in a way to coal mining. We see the writing on the wall. We're angry government's not doing anything about it. But we do want good jobs and we care about our community. So it's connecting with what people, what do you care about? What's good and what's good about? Like also asking the questions about what's positive, what's good, what do you have to work with as a starting point? Um, and I have no problems with then people opening up and getting to the point when they, they've talked enough and they kind of go, oh, so what else is there? And then I can share a story going, well, do you know that there's another community just like yours, maybe in America, maybe somewhere else in Australia? They've got the same issue. This is what they're doing about it. So true stories that are grounded in reality that people can relate to. And then people go from this at the beginning to this, <coughs> leaning forward as they tell their story, to going and going, getting angry and kind of going, how do we not know about this? Why isn't anyone doing about it? And then it's how do we use that energy to then help people move forward. Thank you. Yeah. And one last question, I think. I'll be quick. We're out of time. Yeah, one last question. Thank you, darling. Um, I was just wanting to ask Elsie um, what your experience has been in bringing up this issue because I couldn't help but notice there is a certain trepidation and a kind of need to, you know, use the word let's deal with this big elephant in the room, but with compassion. And maybe there's like a, a little bit of a reference to the previous question. It just made me think, you know, I think men just need to do some work. Like, I, I really think they also need to maybe not ask women to help them. Like, I think you guys need to do that work for yourself. Um, and I think that's partly connected to this kind of, I guess, an anxiety around addressing that issue about whiteness and about gender. So, Elsie, question for you, and also maybe Darren, if you could reflect on what role that plays in the data community, because I know that uh, Inspiral actually placed that at the core of what they do. So that's, yeah. Good question. Elsie. Yeah, look, I, the trepidation um, clearly is there, because one of the things that we do in society is make people feel like they're not wanted or not liked for a reason, if they have a different point of view. And I think women have been dealing with that for a long time, and I think people of colour, you know, deal with that too when they come into a different society, and, the, and there's a sense you have to behave in the way that, you know, often you don't even know what the rules are. But um, So, yes, there is the trepidation, but I suppose um, my trepidation is more about I don't want to be divisive because the worst thing we can do... I mean, I was given feedback... I don't want to go too much over time, but, you know, there's a film out at the moment called The New Economy, Canadian film. It's a fantastic film, probably, you know, a lot of you have seen it. Every expert in it is a male. Now, I contacted the makers of the films and I contacted some people who'd been, you know, saying this is the greatest film ever. I was told, and I think Bronwyn Morgan was someone who was going to be in it, but I was told the women were sick on the day the film was made that they were going to interview. Oh, my God. And it sort of just isn't really enough, you know, and there, there is a sense that, you know, I then was getting into a bit more of a debate with one of the thought leaders, is a horrible term, I'd never want to be called one, but uh, in the, the, the Commons and New Economy movement, and there was sort of a bit of a sense of, well, we're waiting for women to come and step up and, and take, you know, that's how movements happen, you know, you've got to come in and, and take the space. Well, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not the spirit of the commons. It's not the spirit of solidarity economy. And, it, you know, it shouldn't underpin the new economy or we're stuffed again because really what we want to do is go into this in a sharing way across gender and culture. You know, and there's not many people from an Asian background here today. There's not many people from an African background. You know, 
we have to take that on board, you know? We're sitting around as white people talking to each other all the time and we're not actually taking on board. We're in the minority, you know? And we've just... And, and, and everything we know about ourselves is built on what white, white men have written, whether it's philosophy or history or... So, you know, they're the things we've got to address, but not in a divisive way. And I think as many men care about it as women in my friendship circle, the bubble my son says I live in, but, you know, as many men I know care about this issue like I do. I, you know, I don't... There's not a thing for blame here because most men are on the bad end of patriarchy too. Yeah, thank you. And Darren, and make it pretty quick because we're yeah, starting sure. just to, to Just to say, um, just that, you know, there's, there's so much... Um, bias built into just platforms in general and um, if you think about labour platforms in particular the dehumanisation that goes on um, and, and just point to examples like the Design Justice Network which is trying to get a conversation started and develop a set of principles about how do you make sure that when we're designing these platforms and interfaces and technologies that we think about all these questions about having compassion and about who's providing the services and about having empathy and, and look at the work of people like Cameron Tonkinwise who's written about from like an interface design point of view, how do you build in empathy into those interfaces so that if you're, you know, um, getting someone to pick up your laundry or deliver a meal on Uber Eats or something, you actually get to know who that person is and what their, you know, story might be and understanding that it's not just about tapping on your smartphone but really revealing a much broader human story to those interactions. Thank you. I was going to wrap up, but Auntie Mary Graham has a question, and I'm sorry, I can't refuse. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's not really a question, it's just a comment you're saying, Elsie, about, uh, well, about men and women, and um, it just sounds to me like what you're suggesting is uh, sort of like should be reconciliation between men and women, too. Do you know what I mean? Not just between black and white. Uh, a gender reconciliation or something. And exactly as you say, without blame or do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Tell me yeah. <laughs> Thank and, you. And really, balance is the key word, and it's been said a lot today, balance. And, and you said, you know, about men's business and women's business traditionally uh, in Aboriginal culture, and I think we just need the balance, you know? Like, obviously, if women were running the world for, you know, a thousand years out of control, we'd have a whole lot of different problems. It's really not that men are any better or worse than women, it's just that we've got this imbalance. And that's a good way to end our lovely session. Can we all please thank our lovely speakers? <laughs>